0: So this particular, what I'm going to give to you today, is part of a much bigger project, and it's looking at religion and global politics. And in particular, I don't look at just conflict. I really am interested in violence. And so for me, there has to be the possibility of blood being spilled at some point in the relationship of the people that I'm looking at. Um, I'm an international relations scholar, this is an interdisciplinary conference, it's been actually really interesting and fun to listen to the conversations that have happened so far. So I'm trained as a political scientist, I, will, I do believe that there, you can have cause and effect, um, and uh, that you can measure these things and analyze these things, uh, I do statistical analysis, this paper is, that, 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 or this set of papers that I'm going to be showing you today involves a lot of statistics. Uh, but I really do, I actually can speak and read Russian, and I read a lot of history. Um, and uh, it's actually what drove me to statistics to see whether you can generalize from particular cases. So the book that I'm looking at is just trying to get at under what conditions does religion emerge as a central feature in politics. So I've done a lot of work on the state of Sudan, uh, which is now two states, and it broke apart. <laughs> um, and uh, in part, at, it, when it... Uh, got independence from Britain in the 1950s, religion was not a core feature of the struggle between the North and the South. Uh, It was really about autonomy, but by the 1980s and into the 90s, religion became a central feature. And uh, The question is why? How did that happen? Uh, What changed uh, the dimensions? And then all the cases I'm looking at are Islamic majority populations. Uh, So Sudan is one of my cases. I'm also looking at Iran. And how is it that Khomeini... And his followers sort of reinterpreted what it meant to be a Shia. They went from a quietist sort of tradition to now they're centrally involved in running the government of Iran. Um, and why Islam? Again, I've done a lot of work looking at civil wars. As I said, I tend to look at the violent end of things. Uh, and it turns out that Muslim societies, Muslim majority societies, are involved in a disproportionate number of civil wars since the 1940s. I wrote a paper. I don't attribute anything intrinsic to Islam, uh, although there are aspects of Islam, the way it's being interpreted today, that allows for it to be brought into the public arena, mobilizes people to fight, and in particular, the concept of jihad, which other people have written about, uh, which has now become an individualized obligation to go and defend compatriots. Uh, But Christianity, too, had the Crusades. Buddhism now is seeing, we're hearing about engaged Buddhism, the idea that you need to be involved outside of your own transcendence and help your community. Um, And then if you look at these civil wars, nine of the ten of intra, so where you have violence within communities, has been among Muslim communities. Um, And then if you look at the inter, so you've got a Christian community engaged against a non-Christian community, one side involved Islam. And I think it has to do with development globalization, democratization, those sorts of issues. So if you're interested in that, I have a paper on explaining that. And then terrorism, which does seem to be, we know that Muslims alone do not perpetrate terrorist acts. Of course we know that. Uh, But Salafi Jihadism has really taken off. And if you look at the data, a colleague of mine, Asaf Mahagadam, has tracked this. Upwards of 80% of suicide terrorists um, and uh, the majority of terrorist events are being perpetrated by Muslim Salafi Jihadists. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are a large number of those cases. So the question is why? Um, uh, why is that the case? So this paper fits in. It's largely an empirical exercise after our heady discussions about philosophy and basic principles of how we should order our societies. Uh, but it is theoretically informed. And what I'm interested in is, is whether different types of political actors or different types of actors in the political arena behave differently are they more violent? What happens when the government comes in and tries to repress them or 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 uh, 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 put down violence or, or just sort of try to correct their behavior, whatever that is? Do different kinds of actors in the political arena respond differently? And we haven't really looked at that. We just we look at nationalists and if somebody's think you know the people talk about ethnic groups and ethnic actors, but only recently, and I think you're starting to do this, Iran, are people really starting to look at Well, there may be religiously inspired that needs to be differentiated from nationalists. In the old days, we sort of lumped them together. So Mark Juergensmeyer, who's one of the uh, best scholars on sort of religiously inspired nationalists, he too doesn't really provide us a way of differentiating religiously inspired actors. He talks about cosmic war and that sort of thing. Uh, But he sort of lumps them together with nationalists and self-determination movements. So that's what I'm trying to do. Is it the case that nationalists and religious actors uh, behave differently or inspired differently. uh, There seems to be a lot of overlap. One of the critical differences, and actually you talked about it, Julian, a little bit earlier, um, is this notion of afterlife and self-sacrifice. What's really striking, my first book was on nationalism, is that when a nationalist goes into battle, goes to war, takes up a fight with the central government, there is not going to be a promise of individual reward. Right? They're putting themselves in harm's way. Scott, you talked about costliness, costliness, costliness. When a nationalist st- does that, they're th- what they're doing is, is they're protecting sort of the historical memory narrative of the nation. And if they die, they're guaranteeing or they're helping to guarantee that that nation will continue to exist in the future. But as an individual, they're not getting any promises of anything. Whereas for religious adherents, if they believe in an afterlife, and many do believe in an afterlife, whether an afterlife exists, I don't care. (laughs) But these people believe that an afterlife exists. And for some of them, this is why they're doing what they're doing or why they're willing to take up certain risks that they otherwise would not do. And I get challenged time and again at Harvard. It's a very secularized institution. You do not put your religion on your sleeve at all. Uh, And I still get challenged, does religion really matter? And the answer is absolutely. Upwards of 85% of the world's population still believes in some sort of god or gods, or a state of transcendence. That's beyond ourselves, right? If there's not a god or a gods. Um, And it does sort of influence behavior. And only now are we starting to get a handle on whether it matters uh, by the values and the beliefs. I'm looking largely at non-Arab Muslims, so Persian uh, Muslims, Shia Muslims. Uh, Sudanese, although the North is Arab actually, uh, the South is not, it's black, um, and, um, and then the Caucasus. This series of papers that I'm going to be presenting um, is uh, with a graduate student who's quite brilliant, uh, <coughs> uh, so he and I have been working to, for the last two years on these papers. So types of religious violence, we haven't really differentiated different types of violence, we've talked about conflict. Uh, but religious actors really perpetrate three different kinds of violence, or are motivated for different reasons. Uh, sometimes they're just moral vigilantes, and we talked about that a little bit, where they're just trying to sort of cleanse society of impure practices or beliefs. And so when you hear about young women being sprayed with acid in the streets of Iran, this is about sort of more of vigilantism. Somebody is sort of does not appreciate a woman showing her face or her skin, uh, and uh, those are sort of revolutionary. They're purists. And they tend not to really strike out at the state as much. They don't. They're not as well organized. It's sort of a spontaneous thing. Uh, then there's the pan-religious. These are sort of the Al Qaeda types who believe that you know you need to sort of recreate the Ummah, the broader community. And and in, even among Al Qaeda, there was a huge debate about whether you should be going after the near enemy or the far enemy. And there was a debate between Bin Laden and his his compatriot, this guy Azam. And Azam uh, believed that it should be the near enemy, that you should stay and sort of purify Afghanistan, uh, whereas bin Laden was the one that said, no, 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 we need to go with the far enemy. Saudi Arabia is corrupt, not necessarily because of Saudis per se. Yes, they're part of the problem, but it was the corrupting influence of the West that did that. And so he had a more expansive, one of the reasons why the, the uh, towers in New York were bombed and, and the uh, uh, Pentagon. Azam was assassinated in the early 90s. And so one of the questions, one of the counterfactual scholars of terrorism asked is if Hazan had not died, would he have emerged and, and, and the revolutionary ideals of it going after the near enemy rather than the foreign enemy, would have that uh, maintained itself? Um, and then there's the national separatists, sort of the politicos, the irredentists. So these are people who want to sort of have their own state and, and um, they don't care about this broader Principles. They just want to be able to live their lives along the lines of some sort of code that's consistent with their belief system. Um, And so, the question I'm, you know, asking myself in this work is. Does the type of different religiously inspired motivation lead to different outcomes? Again, I, I, I cause and effect. Um, and uh, it seems to me that they're gonna have different targets. Of course, they're gonna have different rhetoric. They're gonna have different mobilizational schemes. They're gonna have different sizes of rebel organizations depending upon what they're trying to do, All right? And then who they're gonna target. So is it gonna be fellow Muslims and local governments or is it gonna be outside occupiers, the West, whatever that may be? Um, and so for this paper and this paper I asked Steve if you guys, you can have it if you want it, you email me I have another paper that's related to it that's coming out uh, for this paper the, the, the findings that I'm presenting for you right now is, are patterns of violence locally or globally driven Right. so there's a debate in the literature and I'll talk about that in a second and under what conditions do insurgents turn Islamist? which is a crass way of saying do they turn to Islam And and not just in terms of instrumentalizing it, right? We can talk about outbidding among the elites, that sort of thing. But really that Islam or Islamic Sharia law is really going to provide the foundation of what they believe, how they're going to govern the the polity that they want. And then how do governments that are responding, I'm a student of civil wars, and so I, I, you know, governments and insurgents, I I study them a lot. Uh, How do government policies? Governments have choices in how they deal with insurgents in their midst. And does what the government does, uh, influence different kinds of actors differently? Are nationalists more hostile to government policies than, let's say, religious actors? And I, w- I was curious about that, so this paper is trying to get at that. So the local and global dimensions of Islamist violence. So uh, globalized insurgency is local instance of violence toward a certain political objective, <coughs> and irrespective of what's happening globally. Right? And so you can think about you know, uh, Tajikistan, right? So there was, uh, the, after the end of the Soviet Union, there was a civil war there. And the Islamists who were fighting in that state, they didn't care what was happening globally. It was really a localized fight. This is not the case in Afghanistan. There does seem to be, among some of the fighters, um, a more concern about a globalized um, system of order. Um, and then the question is, in global, why it matters is, you, if, if you can hook yourself into a broader network, you can get leadership, you can get resources, you can get guns, you can get materiel to help your fight. So in the literature, um, these are sort of the, 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 the last bullet point are the people who've written on these sorts of issues, and the arguments are pretty strongly made. Julian made a nice strong argument this morning, and these people make really strong arguments, and they say all of the violence is local. There is no global dimensions to it. Right, and if there is a local, uh, a global dimension, it's opportunistic, right? And so the person who makes the strongest argument is Robert Pape, and he actually denies that there's any, even any religion uh, to most fights. That most of the fights um, um, are about national occupation, and so what you're trying to do is eject the outside occupier. And even he even makes the case for Al Qaeda that this was it's a lo- much more localized fight. Um, And that the violence emerges sort of endogenously from the politics of local environment. Somebody's not getting their fair political offices, economic goods, whatever it may be. And so um, the fight is just, regardless of what's happening internationally, uh, the fight comes from and stays contained within the locality. But then there's a the, another set of authors, scholars who've put a lot of research into um, demonstrating. they you know logically laying out the case, but then demonstrating that no, uh, the violence is more global, and that there really is a global network of Islamists, and they're helping one another, and and it may not be coming you know top down hierarch hierarchically from Al Qaeda, but they really are being inspired from one another, and so Mark Sageman. Um, uh, Asaf Mahagadam, that student of mine, and um, Kilcullen, and then Bruce Hoffman, who wrote one of the best textbooks, I think, that overla- you know, goes through terrorism, um, makes this case. And that um, it may not be sort of a hierarchical network, mm-hmm. but there, there's definitely nodes and hubs, and these, these people, these organizations, are talking to no- one another. Um, and as evidence, they talk to the spread of Salafi jihadist suicide terrorism that it's sort of been innovated, which, by the way, started in Sri Lanka. And, and Bruce Hoffman lays that out. So it was, I don't want to say it was secular, because the the, the Tamil Tigers, they, there was a religious tint to their violence. Um, but uh, it was not originally um, a Muslim, and it was not Salafi jihadists. It actually started in Asia. So our argument in this paper is that it just misspecifies mm-hmm. the literature. Political scientists like black and white arguments. So um, they do that. There's no gray. Uh, so really, they really do misspecify the argument um, because it seems as if we do live in a more globalized <coughs> world. I just finished a book about why religion is resurging globally, which Julian is. Um, uh, more people, since you know, even a decade ago, believe in a higher power of some form, and they're more willingly expressing it. So, um, the, so there does seem to be. And one of the arguments we make in that book is that. It has to do with globalization, which really took off in the 1970s, and now with uh, satellite communications technology, you know, cables and all of that sort of thing, people really are uh, talking to each other a lot more. They're you know going across borders that more. It is not like the late 19th, early 20th century. This is a new era that really took off in the 1970s. So you cannot deny that global factors are having impact, uh, and who are transnational actors? Who are you know corporations? We know but religious actors are transnational actors, right? Yes, there's Rome, there's the Vatican, but where's the church? It's where the members of the church are. It's, it's global, it's transnational. And the same thing with Islam. Um, and so we make the case that there has to be two conditions and you know that, that uh, lead to uh, sort of this global local interaction. First of all, you have to have a government that represses or responds in a, in a negative way. Um, and then we think it's the type of insurgent that if you face a religiously inspired actor who is hooked into globalized networks, then you will get this global local interaction happening, which sounds obvious, by the way, but really the way the field has done it. So I don't, you don't have to read all these. These are just sort of the hypotheses that we're getting at. Um, and the idea is, is under what conditions um, does violence sort of exasperate, become exasperated Um and uh, our big thing is is about, we're really curious about the reaction of regular political actors versus Islamists. Do they react differently to the government repression? right? And um, so a, that's like the big hypothesis that we're interested in. So the government response to a globalized insurgency, and in, in, I'm going to deal with just the caucuses in this paper, uh, the government can choose to repress, and when it chooses to repress, it can go in and it can say, okay, Julian, I know you bombed that liquor store, and I'm going to put you in jail, and by the way, I'm taking your three brothers and your sisters and, and, and just go after an individual. And the Russian government does this. They have lists of people, and they go in and they pull them in. Um, and uh, so they can, at the we, and we talk about that as local control. You can go actually in and pull people out. Or the different republics within uh, Russia and the Caucasus, they have border controls, and they actually have differential border control policies. So if it's the case that you think that this is a globalized insurgency, one of the things you want to do is close your borders and stop the outside influences from coming in. And through the 1990s and into the 2000s, indeed, the different republics had different policies for dealing with sort of border control in part because they thought, and, 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 they, and there's some evidence of some Arabs coming in, not as much as they would believe, that by doing border controls, what are you going to do? You're going to tamp down on what they perceive to be a globalized insurgency. So the question is, is, is it really a globalized Islamic insurgency going on? But the government can do one of two things. They can either go after individuals, <clears throat> insurgents, and control it, um, or they can um, go after um, the borders and try to keep people out. Uh, so the government responds to localized insurgency. Uh, they can either not do anything. Yes, governments, you can sort of let one slide. I mean, Israel's had to deal with this. And in fact, sometimes Israel does not, it, it, it doesn't do anything. A lot of times it does a lot and it does too much. Um, but sometimes it's, it takes the upper hand and says, we're going to let this one slide. Russia tends not to do that, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, very often, Russia tends to have a very iron fist. Uh, and or the government can just keep its borders open and not do anything about border control, right? Or it can sort of vary it over time. So the question is, what's the best strategy? Should there be really tight local control, really tight local repression, and the degree to which uh, borders, should they borders be tightly controlled, or should they be free? And our gut tells us that if Arabs are coming to the Caucasus, who just trying to spin out the hypotheses and predictions, was that if Arabs are coming to the Caucasus, it's usually not to... Um, in some cases, they are trying to establish madrasas and bring peace, but more often than not, they're actually trying to help the Caucasus, the Chechens in particular, but then the broader Caucasus population, to free themselves of what they see as a Western yoke. So we don't think they're in there to do good. right? And so our, our our presumption when we went into this, or our hypothesis, we thought that it would lead... If the borders were looser, it would lead to... Um, more violence right because the presence of Arabs uh, would lead to more violence and so you think about four strategic scenarios Uh, as I said a government can be permissive it could do nothing it could say that was a bad situation no repression so it doesn't go in and pull Julian out Um, and it allows foreign jihadis to be present right so it just doesn't tighten and some Dagestan actually had it turns out if you look at the type of Islam in the Caucasus, it varies the Chechens are Sufi, they're very localized. They don't, actually don't like outsiders, but they don't really, they don't attach themselves as closely to Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabist influence. It's not the case in Dagestan. Dagestan, a, a larger proportion of the population there, goes to the universities you know, uh, in Saudi Arabia and travel and do the Hajj. Uh, so the different republics and the different strands of Islam actually matter in these cases. Uh, or a government could, have, could be highly repressive. And this is where Russia tends to be. It tends to do a lot of local control um, and allow for foreign jihadis present. right? So it doesn't really tighten the borders. Uh, or it could have global control. So again, you tighten the borders, uh, but you allow for local permissiveness. And governments, they make these sort of strategic calculations, or they can repress. So they're just tight all around. They can repress, or they can... And the question is, which is the best strategy? What is the best policy? And we can actually test this and look at which one they should do. Um, and then, of course, our predictions are that um, the worst-case scenario is that you have global permissiveness. So you allow the Arabs in. And I have news for you, they, and I'll show you some of the reports that we have. They use the term Arabs, Arabski. Uh, right, um, You allow the Arabs in, but then you also repress. And we think that's the most volatile um, situation. Uh, and then here, if, if they allow... Um, uh, this is a problem because, again, we don't think the Arabs are there to do good. Uh, the best is if you actually control the borders, but you don't go in and fully repress um, as much as uh, the Russian government seems to do. So we look at the Caucasus and we look at the entire Caucasus region, um, which is in southern, uh, the south, south-central Russia, uh, down here, um, you know, borders Chechn- uh, Georgia, uh, the Black Sea, uh, that region, and uh, why the North Caucasus. It offers a diversity of cases. It offers a diversity of Islam. Maybe most people don't realize just how different Islam is across the different areas of, of the Caucasus. Uh, and then mountain terrain, you know, it's, it's anybody who studies war, mountainous terrain and plains, and, and that all matters. Um, and then, of course, capital cities, geographies, uh, the disposition of armed forces in the region matters, police stations. Um, and then the caucuses, there's a very long memory. Um, the, from the Chechen perspective, the Chechen nationalist perspective, they've been fighting the Moscow yoke for 300 years. Where does Moscow think Putin the last time he went in in 1999? He says he was going to get them out of their crappers in two days. Do you remember that very famous quote? And why did he need to do that? Because he wanted to run out. He hadn't been elected president yet. Remember, Yeltsin had sort of knighted him, anointed him to be president. And this was a way of him demonstrating that he was an effective leader. And here they are. They're actually still there. There's no longer a terrorist campaign down there. But the violence is still happening. We don't hear about it as much. Um, so from the Russian perspective, the secular perspective, you know, this is a very short lived war. From the Chechen perspective, and in particular from the nationalist perspective, it's a long war. Um, and then local grievances uh, have been emphasized from human rights organizations and from sort of local operatives, but then of course the Russia, Moscow uh, really stresses sort of the connection with the global jihad, al-Qaeda and others. So the data, so Why I decided to do this is I discovered this data set, which is an amazing data set. Um, And it was put together by Memorial, which is a very, very good, um, diligent human rights organization in Russia. And they collected data from news accounts, um, uh, mainly Russian sources, but also from regional sources, on every episode of violence, if you can imagine, over a nine year period. And they've updated it. And we're, we're updating now to 2012. Um, across every uh, part of the caucuses. There's over 28,000 episodes of reported violence, so it's incredibly rich. Uh, And then on top of that, um, most of the reports were were formatted in a very consistent way, and they all included their place names. And one of the things that we know, students of war, is that violence begets violence next door. So we know one of our our main findings, our laws is, is that nasty neighborhoods it tends to be nasty neighborhoods that if your neighbor has violence, chances are you're going to have violence. Uh, and so the fact that we actually had place names really allows us to test. Um, so again, like I said at the start, I'm interested in whether Islamists <coughs> behave differently right? to government <coughs> repression. Uh, is it make it worse? Does it actually tamp it down? Uh, so for this paper, Muslim Islamist violence, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the actors themselves, uh, they describe themselves as Salafi, Muslim, uh, Musliman, um, a Mojahed, a Wahhabi, um, and, you know, there's testimonies, and Memorial collected all these data and put them into the reports. And then we looked at the kinds of things that they did, they, what, what, who did they target, and in many cases, they actually, they got caught, and they, they made these statements about why they targeted what they targeted. Um, and then we, we code it as a one, if anybody cares, if a given village. So for us, as this spatial analysis, we're, we're interested in sort of contagion um, of this violence. Is violence against violence, is Islamist violence more prone to spreading than not? Um, so if one uh, episode happened in a village in a month, it was coded a one. So here's an example of reported Islamist violence. And you can see here, these guys are pretty amazing. I presented this at a conference at Prio. And people are like, wow, they're actually telling you why they're doing. You don't get these kind of data. So we have 28,000 of these reports, um, where these guys say, look, we don't want drunken debauchery going on around town, and this is the first warning. And then they'll come back and they'll try to close all the liquor stores um, uh, in the village. Uh, and then this is political violence. So again, we're differentiating Islamist violence from non-Islamist violence. Uh, we don't look at <coughs> criminal violence. Another paper I'm going to be looking at criminal violence. Because uh, I want to see how criminal violence is related to political violence. We don't even know how to do that. Um, and you can see why this is political violence is that they're actually targeting gar- government troops, right? Government forces, the interior ministry. Um, and then, so then the question is, what does a government do when they, you know, there's some kind of violence in its myths? And the Russian government tends to act. It has a right to act as monopoly on the use of force. Um, and so this is who government repression has to be some arm of the U- of the Russian government. Um, and then the Russian government does all kinds of things, uh, anywhere from interrogations to jailings to airstrikes. They go in and they obliterate villages. Uh, we saw that in Grozny in the Second War. They actually pretty much leveled the place. Um, and then if they go after um, targets for us, uh, this is if the, if the targets are Islamist, um, uh, and that's religious places of worship organizations. And they do roundups pretty re- readily uh, at places of worship. Uh, and then examples of government oppression. And you can see uh, it's a mop-up. So a mop-up is when they go in and they basically clear out. Um, and exits have been blocked. Door searches are underway. And so this is what would happen to Julian. His house would be searched. He and all his brothers would be taken away. Uh, the women and children would be left behind. Um, And then religious repression, what happens. Um, So they round up regularly people at the mosques um, and take them in for questioning. And some don't come home for a long time, if ever. Um, So definition of a global jihad. Again, we're trying to look at the degree to which this localized violence is related to more globalized violence. And a colleague of mine, again, Asad Mahavdam, has collected all episodes of violence related to what he believes is sort of the global jihad of Salafism. Right. Um, and uh, so he's collected all that data, so we sort of matched it to our data set. Um, and then, like I said, the Arab presence. There's actual reports. It turns out that Russian eth- you know, Russians talk about the Arabs, the foreigners. Um, if you have dark skin, when you're in, if you ever travel to Moscow, you will get carded. They will ask to see your papers. Um, and you can see you know, a member led by an Arab mercenary. I mean, it's just the way it, that culture, that society works that you actually can clearly get examples of this. Um, these are all the villages um, in the caucuses. So there's 7, over 7,800 of them. And so this is it. So this is just all the kinds of violence from the data set maps. And you can see that the yellow is political violence. So that's anything that's not Islamist. Right. So if it was Islamist, um, it's in the green, because of course green for Islam. Um, but uh, and then if it's just other kinds of violence, and it was mutually exclusive, right. So we actually you, they don't match. And then you can see how government repression tracks, right, onto uh, the different levels of violence. And the question is, is are the political operatives uh, take care um, are the political operatives responding differently? Than the non political Islamist. Because for the Russian government, don't you they, they should want to know, right, whether what they're doing is effective, or they should have a more nuanced policy depending upon the kind of insurgent they're facing. Uh, if you look at just this is looking at just the green, right? Uh, this is the stuff I'm interested in is the Islamist violence. Um, what's really striking is if you listen to the rhetoric of the Russian government and you read their reports and everything else you would believe that there's a global jihad like brewing. But over this period, um, only 15%, the maximum for any, any one period, the maximum was 15% of episodes. I think the total number of episodes that you can attribute to Islam is 14%, 13one percent But for any one time, the maximum number of episodes was 50, 15%. 85% of the violence is being perpetrated for political reasons. Um, Which I think is... I was just shocked by that. I was actually thinking... I I, I guess I was buying some of the rhetoric. Um, But importantly, and this is where Moscow is right, this share has increased over time. All right, so they do seem to be sort of aligning themselves a little bit more. Um, And again, it makes sense. We've talked about the costs of war. If you can get some of your resources elsewhere, uh, you'll do that. And again, we're updating the data past 2012. And what's terrific is is actually our findings are even more fully supported. Um, If you look at the lethality of religiously inspired violence versus non-religious, it tends to be more deadly, so more people die as a result. Um, So I had a paper on civil wars, and it turns out that religiously inspired civil wars end up leading to higher levels of killing. Um, and then also targeting of non-combatants So these, which is surprising because of course we tend to think about just war theory which is a, a Catholic tradition but Islam also has a, its own just war traditions. and non-combatant immunity is consistent across both of them um, but again consistently um, here it turns out that the religious episodes of violence are more deadly, more lethal um, than the non-religious um, so we're looking at the insurgency I don't want to really go through the model yet I'm almost done uh, but the question is, Is what is the incidence of is Islamist-inspired violence in a given uh, village for a given month? Then what is the government doing about it, and are there Arabs present? And for us, that's the indicator of global jihad. So if there's Arabs coming in, giving ideas, money, resources, whatever it may be, um, and then, like I said, spatial relations, right? If one village has violence and the government goes in and does a mopping up operation, the chances are they're going to go to a village next door or down the road. So what are there spillover effects? Um, and then how does this relate to the global jihad worldwide? Um, mapping 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 it on to episodes, is there sort of a mimicry going on? Because some people think there is, right? Um, and then we have some control factors, population density, elevation, mountains, um, oil. Some of the republics are more dependent on oil. Sort of, these are just um, uh, factors that other people have found that are important. OK, so the question is, what's the probability that a village will experience at least one episode of Islamist violence given the level of violence in other neighboring areas? And what is it um, that it'll face an episode of violence given global violence or global Islamist violence? And you can see, you, know, you don't have to worry about really interpreting these, but the point is right here is that, um, that a village's risk of violence it really is totally unrelated to globally inspired violence. It's all at the local level. There's sort of which makes sense, but you know the literature makes it seem as if there's a global jihad, there's global violence, and in particular from this two thousand to two thousand and eight period. So the point is, is that there's definitely a local spillover, meaning that it's related across localities, but it's not related globally. That sort of dissipates. And um, okay, so repression and foreign presence. Okay, how are these different actors responding to government repression? Right, so those are the questions. Do uh, Islamists respond, uh, are, they more ca- are they cowed more readily um, than non-Islamists? Um, uh, and then um, is it the case that these Arabs are active, right? These foreign mercenaries are active. And here you can see that the Arab presence has almost no impact at all. Um, And uh, the biggest predictor is government repression. So when a government goes in and pulls Julian out for being an imam (laughs) in a mosque, Julian's gonna get really angry. And he gets more angry than nationalists and non-Islamist fighters. So they tend to strike back. And it tends to be quite quick. So we lagged our variables for, in statistics we can lag for a day, an hour. Most of us lag for a month, a year. Uh, It dissipates pretty quickly, so we did a month. Um, and it turns out that the biggest indicator of continued violence—violence beginning—is when the government represses and going in. And we control. We do, you know, um, matched samples of, of villages that have undergone repression versus those have not undergone repression. I can give you the paper if you want. But the point is, is that government repression, is local control, may not be the best policy. Uh, the government may want to go and talk, and empathize, and help deal with emotion. Um, and so we ran some simulations. We took about two years' worth of the data to say, okay, if you're Moscow, if you're sitting there, what should you do? Should you locally control um, or you know, do both? Remember that matrix I put up? What should you be doing? Should you be tightening borders and going and repressing that sort of thing? And so what the simulations show, that the worst situation is when the government does local control, so go in, goes in and absolutely represses. So somebody attacks a liquor store and they go in and you understand they're dispensing tanks, armored vehicles, I mean it's sort of overkill, Um, and then global permissiveness, which is what we sort of predicted. Global permissiveness means that the Arabs are there. So this is sort of the worst case scenario, that when the government not only represses but allows for Arabs to be present, um, that's when you have the the highest levels of Islamist inspired violence. Um, The best is actually when you tighten the borders, so actually, Russia should be tightening the borders because, again, it seems to lend evidence that these Arabs are not there to build schools and hospitals. They actually are there to foment revolution. Um, at least these data, you can sort of infer that from these data. Um, but local permissiveness that Moscow may not want to go in, so that's that upper left one, that that's the least violent, um, is when they sort of ignore this stuff or go in with, with kid gloves on. You don't go in and, 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 and sort of arrest every male in the community, uh, which is what they tend to do. Um, so the summary of the preliminary is Islamist violence accounts for a relatively small share of all violence in the Caucasus. Uh, I, was, I knew it was smaller than Moscow had, had suspected, but I hadn't realized it was so small. Uh, it has been increasing over time, and then Islamist attacks have been more deadly, on average, which is important. Um, and then again, a village is more likely to experience Islamist violence, if it's been exposed to government repression, uh, which is really important. And I hope Moscow, I hope the Russian government reads this. and are not be so happy with me. But um, And then the Arab presence and international um, terrorism have a positive but a very, very modest effect. Um, there really does not seem to. So those scholars who make the case that the caucuses are part of the battleground, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to that. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> I think we all knew this at the start of this, but some of my colleagues did not. That you have to deal with local grievances. Listen, listen to what people are saying. If they're saying that the system's unjust, well, try to make it more just. It has nothing to do, or has little to do, with this global fight. Um, so the conclusions this is my last slide. So I'll finish up. Uh, not all violent, not all religious violence uh, is local, but some of it is. And again, I, you know, I don't want one of my things that makes me a little nervous about this paper is, is that as a student of religions and the resurgence of religion, one of the reasons why religion mm-hmm. is, is faring as well as in the modern era is precisely because it is a global phenomenon and it's sort of religious actors are harnessing the technologies and, um, and uh, resources that the, the modern society, which was supposed to kill them by the way, kill off religion, modernization has actually empowered them, um, but, but this paper is showing that actually most of the violence is lo- much more localized. Um, and that what we suspect, and we have a, we've a, sort of a qualitative case, reading a lot of history, that that when the Chechens allow and the Dagestanis <coughs> allow them to come in, it's really because they want them to help in the local fight. It's not because they see themselves. In fact, the Chechens, one of the one of the things that's really interesting is is that uh, I don't know if you guys remember this guy Basayev, who he aligned himself with this other guy, uh, Kutub, uh Hatab. Uh, and they went up to Dagestan and started sort of fomenting revolution in Dagestan. It had stayed localized in Chechnya. And one of the reasons, again, for that is that the Chechens said, we don't want you here. You're just making it more difficult for us. Moscow is going to come down again much harder. And so they went into Dagestan. Um, and, uh, but even in Dagestan, they weren't successful. But the point is, is that these foreign jihadis that the government is so worried about, they can only assert themselves or have influence or power. Um, if the local grievances are large enough um, and the data seem to support that. So I'll end it there and I welcome your questions and comments. And again, if you want the papers, let me know.
1: Question? Well, yes. so, question closing, so as a control, uh-huh. would you find, anything, would you find yeah. anything different with the anarchist movement, say in Serbia, uh, leading up to World War to or actually in all of Eastern Europe, and, and even into Russia. That is, in terms of how it's organized, what its yeah. response is, what the role of government is, so, and what the role of sort of foreigners coming in yeah. to stir up things. Second, in terms of uh, scale of globalization, I keep hearing that it's so very different, but if you take something like the 1848 revolutions that started in Sicily in January 1848, spread to France and Northern Europe by, by February, into Russia by April, it was as fast as any modern phenomenon, there was no electronic nothing. Yeah. So how, I think the way this is spreading has much less to do with media mm-hmm. than to do with the networks themselves, mm-hmm. how social yeah. networks grow. And then just two little things. Azam yeah. was killed in 89. Yeah, that's it. And, okay. and uh, Paul pa- Arakhan, the military commander of the Tamil Tigers, actually was inspired suicide bombing by a video of Palestinian.
0: I thought that he went and helped them to... Mm-hmm. Okay, because then maybe Hoffman doesn't have it. No, right. no, it was
1: actually the guy. Yeah. You know, he yeah. had seen a film of Palestinian okay. uh, failed suicide attack in London oh. and called him and took, him, mm-hmm. took it in a Oh, that's thing. great. Okay.
0: But the point is that they're, they're not Muslims. So thanks for that question. And, and uh, they were the ones that were seen as perfecting it even more than the Palestinians. And then they went also back and helped to set up some camps as well. Isn't that right? Well, that or maybe I'm not. Responsible for most suicide attacks yeah, until recently. Until the, yeah, until most recently. And then Azam, you're right, it was 89, at the tail end of it, but that was when Al Qaeda was trying to figure out do we stay in Saudi? Or, we, and, or the Middle East, or do we take this broader? And, uh, um, and Azam got assassinated, and we still don't know who killed him. Uh, were, he had a lot of enemies um, as a result. But um, the scale of globalization, you know, Scott, I'm a cynic on this one, skeptic too, but a colleague of mine shared some data about the density of it, uh, and then the satellite communications, and then the introduction of the container ship, the fact that goods can come so much quicker and so much easier across our oceans and that sort of thing, so the intensification does seem to have left um, a more of an impact uh, in the modern era. It seemed to have really picked up in the 1970s. Uh, at that period, I'm not denying that there was not global... You know, you can read Barbara, was it Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August. She talks about how cosmopolitan Europeans felt. There were no borders. There were no passports. You could just cross borders without thinking about it. Um, But this seems instantaneous. I mean, the the, the transmission of data is pretty quick. Uh, The anarchists, it's a great question. You know, I'm a student of the Soviet Union. I have read all the, you know, Bakunin and all those guys. And so I agree. I wish I had data on them. I I would, I would, I would, I would, I suspect that you probably have very similar dynamics. In fact, I think a lot of communists reflect religion as well. They have a cosmological worldview. They have a teleology and a history and an endpoint that they're trying to achieve. Um, but there do seem to be some differences. So on the violent side of things the religious wars seemed a little bit more intractable. They last longer religiously inspired civil wars really uh, and, the, and and the fact that they're more deadly, they're harder to negotiate a, a settlement to. So we, ta- we talked about Israel this morning. Um, they're not as amenable to a negotiated settlement. They tend to go to that victory, right, to one side really pushing. Uh, and you could make the case and that's what happened in Sudan. The South won. It won. And again, it's a religious war. It was it, it, The North turned it into a religious war by trying to Islamicize the entire country. Um, so I don't have the data on the anarchists. It would be fun to, to mess around with that. But I think, just logically speaking, yeah, I think there's absolutely, you can do some mapping um, on um, the motivations. I'm not sure about, you know, some of the other things that we've discovered or or observed out of these data um, that would map onto it. So, and then the social networking, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, people were clever. Lenin, I mean, the moment it was right, they put him on a train and he went right to, I mean, he, he was very well informed about when that revolution was ripe for the taking. Uh, Khomeini, I mean, he used cassette tapes, right, sitting in Paris. And he waited it out. And he had interlocutors. And they were talking back and forth. And he went in. Uh, but I do think that it's sped up. I mean, look at the Arab Spring. How many countries did we have fall within, I don't know, four months? Yeah, but
1: yeah. not faster than
0: 1848. Yeah. But I would say the 1848. It took longer. The groundswell took longer to take on. So I think the falling may have, but I think that the groundswell took longer.
1: Do you want to step yeah. in to comment? Yeah. On just on yeah. the
0: other, I just volunteered. I wrote recently
2: um, yeah. about the, uh, to the end of the, 19th century, the of the 20th century. It is, it is to me you know, very much recollecting that the speed movement was enormously fast, and the levels of dissemination um, had uh, be dispersed uh, even by roads that the slow, sea trade. Um, from Europe to South America. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but of course, the, there isn't, a hard edge there, there, there all,
0: isn't the hard data available.
2: There isn't the one? There isn't the hard data available if it's all too to <coughs> frankly. But also yeah. the, same, the same sort of balance I suspect between um, uh, violence perpetrated in the name of and nationalist violence, which somehow kind of assumes that, mm-hmm. that identity. <coughs> Steve? Yeah. Um, I just wanted if you could clarify something else. I was a bit confused about the globalisation theme of yeah. uh, the talk because um, we started out talking about globalisation, how important it is, and then it's, it seemed that the take-home message for the Russian government was keep the foreign jihadis physically out. Yeah. Now, um, so I guess my question is, suppose I'm a foreign jihadi and the Russians prevent me from physically um, getting where I want to go in the corpus or wherever it is. I mean... Are there not other strategies I pursue through the internet and uh, so on to uh, yeah. try and achieve my ends? So, so can, mm-hmm. you, can you just explain why this is so effective?
0: Yeah. No, it's a great point, right? Mm-hmm. That is it the case that you actually have to physically be present yeah. in order for you to be able to help to perpetuate the violence? Um, I don't know the answer to that because I don't have access to actually explore the degree to which the the networks are operating either via computer networks and that sort of thing. We have the data on these Arabs coming in, uh, and there does seem to be a sort of relationship that when they're there, they do seem to be fomenting some sort of violent activity. Um, and, and the truth is, is actually, they're not the ones actually doing the episodes. Who gets caught tends to be native Chechens, native Dagestanis. The Arabs actually use, usually, according to anecdotal information that we have, they tend to leave before some of the operations actually take place. So they do seem to have to get into the country, provide some sort of knowledge, some sort of material, detonators, whatever it might be that they're bringing with them, um, to allow for this violence to happen. That's not saying that they may not be able to innovate. I mean, we know this. They can innovate around it. And perhaps now, because Moscow has learned, and Moscow has clamped down. I mean, Dagestan got much more restrictive on its borders. Um, And uh, uh, Chechnya, it's still a wild card Um, uh, because they were concerned about the fomenting of revolution in Dagestan. So I don't have the data on that at that point, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and then, who's not to say that the training? Because the other argument is, is, you have indigenous populations actually going and training in camps, and then coming back. Why do they need the foreigners? Uh, we don't have those kind of data either. Because I think that would be important, and again, it'd be nice to be able to track, to actually track the networking um, and how it's operating. This is what we had to work with, and uh, and there does it does seem to lend evidence that. Those guys there, and tends to be mostly men who are coming to visit, are doing that.
2: Um, Roger Trick. Uh, uh, when you look all around the world at the interface between Islam and lots of other different yeah. religions and societies, there's trouble wherever you look. Now, uh, does that mean that there's something about Islam as opposed to religion in general, mm-hmm. particularly at the present day, that mm-hmm. is producing this?
0: Something about Islam? Yes. No, I don't think it is. I think it actually has to do with that. You tend to find Muslims we talk about the waves of democracy in the 1970s and 80s was the Catholic wave. And you could make the argument that right now what we're witnessing is sort of the Muslim wave, um, that these are societies that, you know, they are, they're, 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 uh, many of them formed in the post-colonial period. They're going through their fits and starts of trying to develop liberal, democratic, or more less autocratic states, um, and that there's a lot of repression, um, and local populations are revolting. And I think that's sort of what the Arab Spring um, I would, there was very little um, um, Islam in the Arab Springs. We're starting to see the Muslim Brotherhood sort of, um, um, and then in Tunisia, the, the Islamic parties um, get a little bit more political power. Uh, but I actually think if you, you, you sort of want to flip it on its head a little bit, it was the secularizing regimes in the post-imperial era uh, that sort of gave rise to this discontent because in many of these societies, it sort of came out in our earlier conversation, they do want more of a public role for religion in these Muslim societies. Yeah, they were talking okay. about
2: Muslim societies. I was talking yeah. about the interface, I mean, for instance, yeah. Cyprus between yeah. the Turkish or between the Palestinians and the Israelis or yeah. between, uh, and Israelis, or mm-hmm. between uh, uh, Russians and others. Yeah, well, this is sort and, of uh, where, where it isn't an Islamic society modernizing or whatever, yeah. it's a, a conflict
0: between Islam and many different kinds of religions. Yeah, but I, I mean, I most of the violence we're witnessing today is happening within communities. It's not across communities. There are some holders of Kashmir, Cyprus, um, and those are now s- sort of stalemated. Kashmir is still not stalemated. Um, so I don't know where you're going with it, Roger. Those are sort of a, a kind of conflict that we're still witnessing. Sam Huntington talked about these as clash of civilizations. And that these were the fissure points or the the, 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 the fracture points of the earth. And he had a map and he showed. Uh, many African countries are split, north, south, you know, Muslim north, Christian south. Um, but most of the, like Nigeria, most of the violence is happening within more localized communities. Yes, it's Christian, Muslim, um, but it's more often than not about what's happening in the localities and whether or not Nigeria is a federal government and whether individualized states are going to have a particular, you know, political process. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question. Well, but there is isn't di- what you're saying is there isn't a
2: common feature of some kind of problem about Islam in all of these different no, I No, there
0: isn't. I mean, most of it is coming out of more localized politics. Yes. Um, the Greek Cypriot situation is a result hmm. of sort of Turkey-Greek relations going back um, decades. Um, it's not necessarily a Muslim-Christian. Yes, there's a tint to it, given the historical record and hundreds of years and empires ebbing and flowing. Uh, but at this point in time, I think you'd have a hard time saying it's something intrinsic to Islam that is explaining it. Um, I, I would be very uncomfortable making that case.
2: I think we should
3: move to uh, the gentleman at the back. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. You've done a tremendous job. And it's nice <laughs> to have all these the statistics and numbers yeah. uh, for these types of discussions as well, especially yeah. the, the map. I was going to ask you if, if you, you might want to comment on this problem from the other angle. We You're talking about people getting in, yeah, um, and uh, looking at it from a point of view of a possible vacuum. And I'm referring to some recent research that's come up from uh, Galina who uh, who's done research on the um, resurgence of Islam within, within these communities. Yeah, and and the the question that arises is whether the Soviets did such a good job of um, kind of um, well, Sovietizing religion and virtually eradicating it that mm-hmm. it, it, it in effect created a vacuum because mm-hmm. the indigenous Islamic traditions, which were nonviolent actually, yeah. um, were no longer there, mm-hmm. and so therefore when, when now these, these regions regions, Chechnya and Buschetti, et etc., uh, mm-hmm. start getting autonomy or semi-autonomy. They then look for a religious role model. They no longer have the indigenous role model. Yeah. And and not so much that necessarily the, the so called Arabs are getting in, <laughs> but that they also, and there's a vacuum effect. They're also looking for, and, and then it's quite easy to to get Wahhabi funded uh, institutions, for instance, in, in yeah. these areas, and the vacuum that was created. So I wonder if you see any correlation between that, between the kind of loss of the indigenous traditions yeah. and the. No, it's, it's
0: a great question, and, and you know this, this actually started in the 19th century when Moscow first went into the Caucasus and sort of annihilated the population uh, and killed off, actually, all of the older Imams, right? So it was an incredibly bloody war in the 19th century, it took 60 years, and, um, and sadly, it was the old guys who all got killed because they could not physically run away. Right, because they were coming. They're bringing cannons up into the mountains, denuding all the birch forests. And some people make the case that actually they lost sort of their real traditional Islam because many of the older imams uh, were killed off. So I, but I, I haven't researched that aspect of it. I, I absolutely I think there's that part of that um, is at play in the sense that they're looking or they don't have uh, a deep fundamental sense of what you know what the role of Islam is is in their societies. Uh, And so they are looking around and they're they're going to see how different models operate. On the other hand, so I think there is some borrowing or however you want to phrase it. On the other hand, I don't think we want to discount the fact that in most of these societies, highly regulated atheistic socialist societies, religion did remain part, it just was inside the home, right? People still practiced; they still read the Quran, Um, and in the case of the Chechens it was really very localized to the imam right? you didn't have the top down Wahhabist coming that was not the case in Dagestan which is why I do think that Dagestan became much more of a hotbed of the Islamic or or Salafist inspired violence than did Chechnya so I'd love to see Galina's work because I'd like I haven't seen anybody really study the different strands of Islam and then if it's the case that I'm right, my gut tells me that I'm right, that Dagestan has a different... Then, then it should be the case that the vacuum is operating much more so in Dagestan than it was in Chechnya. And, and that does seem to be the case. The data seem to bear that out. Um, but I, I haven't been able to track... I haven't been tracking that. Uh, that's great that she's able to get data like that. But I have no doubt that actually there is borrowing going on and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but that is what religion is. I mean, religion changes over time. And and, and, um, and so the question is, is what would, what would have been the baseline? And I don't think the baseline is as low as most people. The Soviets did not do as great a job of killing off religion as, as they would like us to believe. Yes, they didn't allow mosque building, and they got rid of a lot of mosques. But you can practice your, your faith as private, and you can practice it uh, in your home. And, and a lot of people continue to the traditions in their home. Um, even despite what uh, Moscow was saying.
2: Right, uh lady at the back has been very patient. <coughs> um,
4: do you see a similar uh, situation in Afghanistan with what you describe, um, where um, the the really being, being, being localised and a lot of the violence is being local against our neighbours, and that when they they are in the Taliban made um, alliances for the Al-Qaeda's act, really was after 2001, really for um, necessity for need, because um, they were becoming under attack, but then <coughs> there's, there's obviously a big um, difference between the localised conflict, and then the, um, which is the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda, which led more to the global, but you know, that was really quite um, <coughs> condensed. Are there any moments in times that we're more
0: between the Yeah, I think, I mean, Scott, you could probably answer this better, but I think the Taliban regret their alliance with al-Qaeda. I mean, I, I, my sense is, is that this was more localized. They were hanging out in Pakistan in the border areas. Uh, they didn't perpetrate 9-11. Yes, they harbored al-Qaeda, uh, but al-Qaeda was helping them, right, have resources um, and that sort of thing. So uh, I don't think the Taliban ever... Saw themselves as part of this more globalized fight. Al Qaeda did, um, and similarly in Iraq. I mean, this is what happened in Iraq, and it was finally the Iraqis who said, "We don't want any of this." So this is, the, what is it's AQI Al Qaeda. You no, know, in the uh, what's the, uh, the the Iraqi group? Well, anyway, um, Mesopotamia. yeah, Mesopotamia. Well, anyway, they the, similarly that they realized that it was a mistake. The Sunnis in Al Anbar province aligning themselves, and so they turned coat. Because it ended up bringing sort of you know um, you know more of a hostile reaction, more force uh, down on them. So um, again, I think the Taliban are another example where it was much more localized. um, And uh, my you know talking to friends who are experts on Al Qaeda and. Uh, and I've studied the Taliban. That the Taliban sort of regret actually having made that alliance, but now they're in that bed and they have to deal with it. Although Al Qaeda seems to be, I was at a conference last week, and you know the big question is, is Al Qaeda dead or is it dying? Is it on its deathbed, on death row? And there was a panel of four or five um, terrorism experts: Martha Crenshaw, Mark Yudanismyer, Jessica Stern, and Scott Appleby. And the consensus seemed to be that Al Qaeda is on the run. I mean, I don't know, Scott, do you think al is on the run? They have been
1: since yeah. 2002.
0: Yeah, but now that we've really sort of decapitated the highest echelons. But that doesn't mean that sort of people are using the brand. I don't know, if, I think Jessica Stern talked about the branding, right, uh, in the more localized. But there, the question is, is, is that going to be effective to get the resources coming in um, to help fight your local fight? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. I understood
3: you, you suggested that um, Moscow is pursuing basically, and I mentioned it, the wrong strategy. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and enacting local control, not I in mean yeah. the arms, but but um, trying to stirring up resentment locally about
3: your meeting constant for oppressive people. Um, and better policy would be global control, the local oppressiveness. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you, if you could um, speculate as to why. Moscow doing this. Are, are they just mm-hmm. miscalculating? Just like thinking that what they're doing is actually going to stop the violence, and they're just not understanding, yeah. or, or are there extra reasons for them, uh, uh, external yeah. reasons for them, other reasons for them to pursue this course of policies, even if it's not going yeah. to the most likely to extinguish conflict?
0: Well, you know, having been a student of the Soviet Union and Russia, the empire for a number of years, um, they don't necessarily. Uh, there, there are some. I think me when he came in, President me um, when he came in, he wanted to take a more nuanced approach, and he did actually. He was the one that actually stopped the terror. He he declared the terrorist operations are over. But generally speaking, their war fighting ever historically, and I'm going to talk in broad terms, is quite ham handed. Uh, they and they don't take. I mean, they tend to be very labor intensive. I mean, you can look all the way through history, um, and uh, and also I think there is some racism going on. And when they look at the caucuses. I think they're really angry. There's a lot of emotions here. First of all, they were defeated in 96. I don't know if you guys remember from 94 to 96, they fought a war and Yeltsin had become president and he ran against this guy, Lebedev, who was a general. And Lebedev came in second and really made people, and Lebedev was, was a general, he'd fought in Moldova. He was a national figure. Uh, a lot of respect people had for him. So what does Yeltsin do? He needs to get rid of Lebedev. Um, so he sends him down to Chechnya to negotiate a peace. And what does the guy do? Oh my gosh, he comes back with one, right? He didn't come back with another strategy and, and it really set Moscow, you know, ethnic Russians, whomever you want to see socially, this was really bad, that they had actually sued for they had sued for peace and that a general had sued for peace. So they were sort of at the highest echelons, itching to go back from 96 to 99, and the Chechens didn't do them any favors because, of course, they did not govern the, their, their area well, and Moscow was supposed to have sent resources in to rebuild it after the first war, and so then in 99 we had the Moscow apartment building bombings. We still don't know who did it. All of these conspiracy theories that it was the central government, no it's the Chechens, no it's, you know, whoever. Um, but it gave Moscow... Um, a reason to go back in. There had been kidnappings in the pipelines and that sort of thing. And it was at the same time that Kosovo was happening. And what were we doing in Kosovo? We actually did do strategic strikes. It's amazing to look at the battle plans and see that when we said we were going to go into one building, into the basement of the building, we went into one building into the basement of the building and nobody was killed. But Moscow felt as if it had a free reign in Grozny. And that was when it totally obliterated. There was no nuance. And so this is sort of their way of fighting, is just going in and just saying, we're going to make a lesson of, of, of these people. We don't want revolts. We don't want rev- revolutions. And so I think it's just ham-handedness. I think there's racism. Um, and, uh, and the military mm-hmm. being very angry that a general, one of them, had sued for peace in 96, and they were going to teach the Chechens a lesson, and that Nobody's watching, there's no social public pressure for them to pull back because they've shut down the media, Memorial is still there, uh, they, they um, um imprisoned journalists, this. so there's no reason for them not to be repressive in the sense of uh, uh, societal sanction on them. Uh, so what I'm hoping is that I can come along with scholarship and say, do you want to win this thing? Do you want the violence to end because it's costly to you? Uh, you are using resources. You're actually inflaming the Islamist violence, which is the stuff you're most afraid of. It's the stuff they are really okay. most afraid of. Um, and uh, so maybe you should talk to these people. Stop going in and, and raiding the mosque. I mean, they go in regularly and raid mosques, um, and as if this is going to teach these guys a lesson. It's always guys. Women tend not to go to the mosque, and and so. That, that's my answer. I, you know, there's no social sanction. They can do what they want. And historically speaking, they've never, they, they don't like to negotiate. So. um I had two, so I had a comment to Roger's question and then a, and then a question for you. Um, so the comment was just that I think a recent sort of survey from the Pew Forum um, found that in the U.S. at least, sort of attitudes amongst Muslims, are overwhelmingly of a sort of very moderate, of a like sort of moderate both politically and socially, and I think that supports your point that it depends a lot on sort of local context and stuff. Um, Islam. I had a question about. Um, so you said in your remarks that one of the things that really makes a difference is just a willingness to go ahead and hear grievances, mm-hmm. um, and that that's really important. And I'm just really curious to hear what sort of structures are being used for that, so is it is? are there formal structures for hearing grievances, is it sort of, um, is, are there, is it a political, social setting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. what's really interesting, so when the, when the Soviet Union first dissolved, uh, it was really the case that they did not negotiate at all with the Chechens, mm-hmm. none, they negotiated with the Tatars and the Tatars were light in the middle, and the the Tatars were demanding greater autonomy and greater independence. So were the Chechens, just greater autonomy. And Moscow would not even really talk to them. It was astonishing. Now, there's a Minister of Nationalities, and there are mechanisms for doing that. Uh, There are NGOs that are operating and that sort of thing. But but, But there's a sense that until the violence absolutely stops... There's not going to be no negotiation. And by the way, I don't want to paint the Chechens as the good guys here. You know, we can all talk about um, Beslan with the children on the first day of school. Um, um, I mean, they've done some really horrific things, the theater hostage-taking as well. Um, But on the other hand, you, you have to, until Moscow recognizes that it has a true negotiating partner. Now, what it's done is it's installed a proxy government under this guy, Kadyrov, uh, who is as heavy-handed as Moscow is. And so you have a highly repressive state right now in, in the Chechen Republic. Um, and uh, and I, in, in fact, in Ingushetia there was a new leader who was willing to negotiate. Um, so there's been some movement um, of talking, uh, both at the local levels, but then the center to uh, locality. Uh, so there are mechanisms in place um, but until both sides, this is sort of back to Iran's talk, right? Until both sides acknowledge that there's some validity to the narrative on both sides, you're not going to get a real negotiation. And, and I'm not convinced yet that Moscow sees that in the case of Chechnya. That, that, uh, because there's, a, there's been a lot of, in the last, well, since 94, there's been a lot of blood spilled, seven, what is it, 17, 18 years. Um, and, then, uh, and then from the Chechen side, Uh, really there's very little trust of this central government and and Kadyrov has an iron hand and um, there's not going to be free and fair elections there for a very long time.
2: Right, I'll take the last question from the gentleman back. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed your talking obviously but depressingly I must disagree with all these conclusions. Okay. So um, I hope you got the point that Roger uh, was alluding to with Islam. I think you've got to look at the metaphysics but you can't just look at the phenomena you've got to look at the underlying philosophy. Now three issues that give me great cause for concern. The first, there's no such thing as a loyal opposition. There's no such thing as a loyal opposition in Islam. It's a very depressing fact from a book called *The Closed Circle*, and um, that's why democracy and constitutional law, are, it's very difficult to establish these things because they, they depend on loyal opposition. The second, um, a kind of, in many facets of life, there's a kind of attempt to minimise empathy or second person relatedness. The hiding of the face. Is the most uh, obvious mark of that. Um, but it goes on in many other parts of the life. The third thing that gives me great cause of concern is the mandate of death for apostasy. So there are nine countries in the world where if you convert away, you're killed by law. Mm-hmm. In many other countries, um, you, you, you're, you're, you'll be threatened mm-hmm. extra legally. And that happens even in this country, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's happening even in this country. Mm-hmm add something to that? No, it's a different question. It's, it's just a follow-up. Can a question.
4: In a Afghanistan, would you um, um, advocate a similar solution to the Soviets in regards to how America should deal with um, the local insanity of the Taliban? Should they um basically eat up and negotiate the Taliban and, you know, similar solution would you advocate with the not the Soviets Russians <laughs> with the um, caucus, yeah. caucus groups?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I've said since the start of the Afghan War that we were going to have to you're going to have to negotiate with the Taliban. They know the local politics, they know the terrain. We are not going to be able to defeat the Taliban. Uh, I mean, as tragic as I mean the big our big concerns about when we leave, of course, is what happens with women because they're we understand that they're going to repress women quite a bit, Uh, and then the educational system and culture. Right, they're all going to be killed if it's the case that they they buy. But on the other hand. We do not have the staying power, the will, the wherewithal to stay. Um, and we're pulling out. I mean, we already have our end game. And so we're going to have to negotiate with the Taliban and put pressure on them from without. We will have some labors. It's not like, and they're going to have to, you know, have an economy and govern. And one of the interesting things is, is that when, and, and sort of this will answer some of your party, when Islamic-based parties compete in power, they moderate their position, if it's the case that they want to stay within the confines of a normal governance structure, they're not going to resort to bombs or bullets or whatever. Um, but they do moderate the position because they want to win votes. And the Taliban, the question is, is at what point would they have moderated if, if, if 9-11 hadn't happened? And I bet you over time they would have moderated their position yeah. because it costs a lot, both constitutionally as an in individual, to repress an entire population. I mean, the Soviet Union, yes, it took 70 years, but it finally crumbled under its own skin. It just crumbled. Um, and uh, so the idea that we're going to defeat them, I and mean, yes, eventually we're going to, we are negotiating with them. We know that. Um, uh, we have been negotiating with some of the Taliban, been duped and tricked and that sort of thing. It's happened before. But uh, we have no choice because we don't have the wherewithal, the resources, the will to stay, to, take, uh, to do what it's going to take uh, to defeat them, uh, which is what it's going to happen. I mean, they, they have the legalism of power. As to Islam, you know, sir, I respect your opinion, but what I'd say is what about these countries where they actually do have Islamic-inspired parties competing for power regularly? Indonesia, right? Indonesia, you know, they, the Islamic-based parties help bring down Suharto, right? Tunisia, right, is the Islamist, and it seems if like Tunisia is going to have a democratic government. Yes, there's some of the more fundamentalist extremists, however you want to do it, parties uh, want to impose... Um, some restrictions, but some of them understand that this is a, a society with a pluralist set of views um, and uh, and they're going to, you know, work within the system um, to make it, to, 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 to get it. The death for apostasy, yes, there are some states that have that, uh, but they're not the majority of states. And, um, and then there was your second point, the empathy. We may we we'll able talk about that tomorrow, those notions, maybe Aaron can talk to you about that. The the notions about empathy, Um, but uh, but loyal opposition. I think you can have loyal opposition, Um, and and we've Uh, seen uh, it. We've we we are witnessing witnessing it today in in a number of countries.
2: We're witnessing opposition Mm -hmm. um, in in a period of change. That's certainly true. Whether we're going to end up in a stable situation where loyal opposition is committed to Mm -hmm. whoever comes to power. Mm-hmm. That I, I'm, I'm more skeptical about, I'm afraid. Yeah. I, although I hope
0: you're right. I... No, and you have a right to be skeptical, right? History has not been good here. Um, but what I'm saying is let's not be too skeptical because there are some countries in which the loyal opposition and democratic governance, liberal norms are being respected. And hopefully, they, you know, we talked about you know, uh, serving as an example. Um, maybe you know, they will serve as examples to the new countries that are, you know, the Arab countries that have now gone through the Arab Spring. So thank you very much. All right
4: so uh